everyone to the Family Medicine Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies within the field of family medicine and primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tanning. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back, and thank you for tuning in to the Primary Care Podcast. We're still in the process of completely rebranding from our former identity of the Family Medicine Podcast and switching over to our new name, the Primary Care Podcast, the PCP. So thank you for bearing with us as we make that shift. And I'll take that as a mental note for myself to get my wife back in the studio and to re-record the intro and the outro soon. This is episode eight with Dr. Beatrice Lin. And before I introduce you all to Dr. Lin, I just want to thank all the listeners for listening and spreading the word about the podcast. Word of mouth is our advertising in these early days of the show. So definitely tell a friend, tell a loved one, maybe a coworker, if you think they might find it enjoyable or interesting. The positive feedback and the listenership has been growing, especially lately, so I just want to thank everyone for that. Last time I checked, we had all five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts, so that's great. And that's a mental note for you, the listener, to give the podcast a rating. Leave a quick review if you have 30 seconds of free time. I'd really appreciate it, and uh, I thank you uh, in advance. Also, feel free to check out past episodes. I noticed that the Dr. Edric two-part podcast may have slipped past some people as it was released around the holidays about two months ago. So, don't sleep on that one, is all I'm saying. Okay, Dr. Lynn was on this episode. And she is such a passionate speaker and gives us the incredible story of her life growing up and going to medical school in South America in Colombia, and then coming to Colorado to do a residency in internal medicine. Her life is so interesting and exciting and compelling that we got a great profile of her life and her journey and didn't quite have the time to hit on a lot of other topics that I know she loves talking about, um, such as preventive medicine, teaching residents, teaching med students, women's health, and, and so forth. So the plan is to have her back on the podcast to discuss more about how she practices medicine. So keep an eye out for her return episode sometime in the near future. All right, but in this episode, we touch on some of those topics in the second half of our uh, hour-long conversation that we had. And she dove deep into her personal history and journey. She told me about growing up in Colombia how she convinced the dean of the med school to admit her, even though he was skeptical, graduating med school at age 23 and doing her internship year in the jungle of Colombia in the late 1980s, early 90s, uh, during the height of the dangerous Colombian drug trade. And her story has so many dramatic themes and elements and events in it, um, some of which include assassinations, international drug trade, guerrilla warfare, 
overcoming odds, following your dreams, staying true to your word, staying persistent through difficult situations, being named resident of the year, and and lastly, why preventive medicine is the name of the game. And of course, so much more. So let's get to it. Here is the great Dr. Beatrice Lynn. Associate Dean's Suite, I believe, or conference room with uh, Dr. Beatrice Lenz. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Lenn. Thank you so much for inviting me, Ross. Yeah, no problem. I'm uh, excited to talk to you um, because this is the first time that we've had some listener input on questions to um, ask you or ask the guest um, about their life and work. Um, and usually we start off with talking about the, the guest physician's background, the history, um, upbringing, that sort of thing, and, and journey through medical school. Um, and that was the number one thing that anybody submitted to, to, for me to ask you about, is tell me uh, what was life like growing up in Colombia? Where'd you grow up? And um, just tell us a little bit about the pre-med school days uh, in your life. Well, I'll be happy to tell you. So yes, I am a proud Colombian, uh, transplanted to the United States, uh, 27 years ago plus, almost 28, so I've been here for a very long time. Nice. But I grew up, I was born in Cartagena, which is a beautiful city in the Caribbean. Yeah. And then two years later, my parents moved to their original city, which is Medellin, mm -hmm. the, um, the second largest city in Colombia, and is a beautiful city right on the Andes. Yeah. And I grew up there. Um, so I'm like half Caribbean, but I mean, not really half. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then mainly I grew up in the Andes uh, in a beautiful city, uh, just, just very very lush and uh, full of, you know, vibrant um, surroundings. And so that's the way I am. I mean, I think all of that kind of rub, rub off on me. Yeah. I'm loud. I like <laughs> to talk. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I, yeah. it's a culture of a lot of conversation, right? Yes, and, exactly. And I mean, actually, if you look at my sister, she's the antithesis of me. Okay. But I actually embrace uh, what the Latin culture is about. I, I love you know, being, you know, close to people, you know, embracing people, um, you know, I love getting to know other people and just, you know, being there. So that is one of the reasons why I wanted to be in medicine, you know, because I, I truly enjoy, you know, being there for others. And so that was one of the main reasons. Um, but growing up in there, um, I had, I mean, I, first of all, I had like the most unbelievable mother and father. Uh, my father, was a mechanical engineer who mm -hmm. graduated from the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Oh, wow. It was a very unusual thing because in 1959, he was an actual kind of an experiment. Um, and then he was a, he was the, 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 the guy with the highest score at the Naval Academy in Colombia mm -hmm. and got, you know, got accepted into the Naval Academy, kind of an experiment with somebody from Peru and somebody from Portugal 
in uh, somebody from the Philippines and my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was 59 and he graduated in 63. So before the civil rights were even passed. So wow. um, it was a big deal. So um, anyway, so that was my dad and my mom, like this most amazing person, you know, who had a background on uh, learning disabilities and work with children with learning disabilities. So I had very, you know, two very caring individuals who like the most important thing was like helping others. Then I, I went to, med- you know, I'm sorry, uh, from elementary to high school uh, to a very unusual, wonderful group of nuns, you know, that were extremely devoted to others and the poor. So through there, I really was like all that thing that I had, that love for the poor and for the, the ones that needed help yeah. was completely channeled through them. And then I had the opportunity since I was in fifth grade to start working with children that uh, we had a school of children that were like, you know, had like lower income and mm-hmm. were supported by the nuns. And so I went there every Monday and I actually tutored the children that had di- difficulty on math or reading or, you know, so it was pretty cool. And yeah. then I started doing mission work with the nuns and then obviously got very exposed. So I basically, since I was five, I wanted to be a physician because my dad had to, you know, um, she, uh, there's this um, cousin of my dad, a first degree relative of my dad, yeah. um, who is a uh, pediatric surgeon. And I wanted to be just like her. She was my pediatrician. Wow. And I looked at her and I absolutely wanted to be like her. And so that's what I said since I was five. I wanted to be a pediatrician. Pediatrician it was. Yeah. And um, anyway, so went through medical, I'm sorry, uh, elementary and high school with the nuns who like really, you know, nurture that love for others and especially for the ones that were in need. Yeah. Um, and then, so I, and that, you know, at the end, I had a little of a hiccup. I, I at the I, end of, uh, of, high, of school? high school, yeah. uh huh. I actually, in my mission camp, I actually witnessed an autopsy, and it was a pretty gruesome thing to a fourteen-year-old to witness. Yeah, I bet. And it was uh, this guy that was performing it was kind of flirting with the nurse and was extremely disrespectful during the autopsy and and being very and i thought that my at 14 years of age i interpret that as a like a way of like you know dealing with like something that was not the most comfortable thing you know so just like being playful type thing and i was like okay if i if i end up being a jerk like that guy i don't want to be a physician right so i then uh by the time that i graduated which in my country I, i was 17 you know um I end up applying for um, engineering school. I applied for civil engineering, mm-hmm. uh, architecture school, because I love drawing uh, and I love architecture, um, in journalism. Okay. Um, and I didn't apply for medical school. Right. And then my mother said, what happens if you just, uh, you know, five, ten years down the road, you think, what if, what if, you know, yeah. I would have become a physician, like right. I said, since I was five. Because that was your dream for a long yeah. time. Yeah. And she's like, I mean, just go, apply late, you know, see yeah. what happens. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be, yep. you know, so I did. And here I am, you know, it was right. actually 30 years ago. But that even I getting into medical school, you told me before, wasn't a very easy job because you had to convince the dean, was it, that uh, you were going to have a full career? Correct. Um, I he had... thought you were 
going to drop out maybe sometime along the way just due to being a female. Uh, am I getting this right? You got it absolutely right. Yes. So he was the most amazing. Again, he was. So first my mom and dad, then my nuns, and then I encountered this phenomenal human being, an internal medicine like myself, mm -hmm. you know, Oh, he was so intimidating. So this is I, the dean of the med school. The dean of the medical school. In I Medellin. have to go in Medellin. I got to go and interview with him. Yep. Um, and I already have taken, you know, the, the entrance exam and, you know, and I went to interview with him and he said, why should I give you this? You know, there are 80 people that I handpick every year. So not every semester, but once a year, 80 people. That was it. Yeah. Why should I give you one of this? And he didn't pause. He was literally rocking on a rocking chair. <laughs> he was chewing on a pipe that was not, you know, light up, lit up, but it was like he was chewing on it. Yeah. And he was like, you can picture him. I'm picturing it. And he was bold and he was very tall. Mm -hmm. And here I am, a 17-year-old, tiny, petite, with this tall, big guy. You know, I was intimidated yeah, as could be. I'm intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> And then he said to me, so why should I give it to you when I've been doing this for so long? And, uh, you know, I get so excited when I see females. You know, you guys are, you know, devoted, very studios, you know, just like what you do. You have that maternal instinct that really, you know, drives you to just help others. And so, you know, when the many years that I, at the beginning, when I was first a dean, I was like, okay, this is going to be it. This is going to be absolutely my protege. And then they graduate and they practice for, you know, a few years. Then they get married, then have a child. And then, boom, they quit. Mm -hmm. And then he said to me, you realize that as a medical student, you actually have a debt to society. You have to pay because society allowed you to learn when they were in their, in their most vulnerable stages. They had a prostate cancer and they allowed you to do a rectal exam. Yeah. They have that ulcerated breast cancer. They allowed you to look at that. And they, most of these are older ladies that are really very private, but you still got to see that. Mm -hmm. You got to see patients, you know, in their most, you know, difficult times. And you learn from that. And so after you graduate, you have to repay that debt with society. So do you think that if you graduate and then uh, you retired a few years on the road that you paid that debt? He said, to, he passed, and then he said, my duty as a recruiting officer right now is to choose those that are going to go and serve the society the best they can and not retire early. So why should I give it to you? And I said, oh, because I will make you so proud. <laughs> give me that position. I will not quit early. I am here because I really believe in, in being a doctor. Yeah. I don't want to quit early. I mean, I know that it's going to be a challenge, and it has been a challenge. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like any other challenge in life, you have to embrace it, correct? So I, I have done so. And yeah. so then I got admitted, and then I finished in there, and... <sighs> Amazing. And I came to the States. But so you were also, he, he was basically making the point that um, females, they'll get married, they'll have kids, and then they'll quit the profession. Correct. But you did get married and have kids, and you didn't quit the profession. You bet. So I, I am 
married. Uh, my husband is a pilot, which makes it even more challenging. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I don't have any family in the United States. Mm-hmm. More challenging. Um, I have three boys. Huh. They're wild, yeah, full of energy. Yeah. <laughs> so I was a busy mother. Uh, but, you know, I embrace both. I mean, or all of them being a wife, being a mother and being a physician. But, you know, before having children, I was a physician and I had taken an oath, right. you know, um, so I it was very clear in my mind what I had to do. And that's what I have been practicing medicine now for 30 and a half years. Amazing. And uh, I know you still carry the the nurturing spirit that you talked about before and the motherly spirit in Every time I've ever seen you, you just exude it. So Oh, thank you. It's, I, it's I love it yeah. so much. I think it's just a big blessing for me. I mean, this, I always say, being a physician is a very big honor. Um, we, we are able to just help others, you know, from simple things to very serious stuff. But, but if we have that, you know, caring, nurturing, bedside manner, it's going to take us so much farther you know, than somebody that knows as much as, you know, you and I can know, but doesn't have that caring, nurturing nature. So I think that the bedside manner is like what it can really catapult us way ahead of others. That, I think you're right on on that aspect of medicine, but also I think it's interesting we don't get that much training in the bedside manner. You're just expected to learn it on your own or just expected to be good at it or expected to um pick it up along the way but i feel like you're saying it's such a huge aspect of medicine but we're not even trained on it you bet and so that's why it is an honor for me now as my hopefully my last chapter of my career Mm -hmm. to just be you know in contact with both internal medicine residents and medical students where i can i literally describe it as like leaving my imprint yeah. I hope to leave my imprint in each and one of you that I come in contact with so you can see the way that I behave with my patients. I am very blessed that many of my actual patients that have been my patients for 5, 10, even 22 years, they actually move to the clinic and here. Yeah. So they can see how I behave with them. They have become part of, I mean, they're friends and family to me. Um, not, not to say that, you know, they don't respect me. I mean, they, we still have the patient doctor relationship. Um, but they know that I treat them like if they were family, like if there's my, you know, the best interest in mind for me to take care of them, you know, and I will treat them like I would like my, my family to be treated. But I think that's the most important thing. If they, it just like, like I raised my children, you know, uh, that's why I call my patients like. Hey, Ms. Mr. John, how are you today? Hey, Miss, um, you know, Joanna, how are you today? When I was raising my children, I always, you know, address my neighbors by their first name, but a miss before, because you know, my children didn't know their last names. Right. But, you know, if I address them in a polite way, then they then, you know, carry on from there on. And to this day, my kids always get singled out because, oh, they're so polite. And I'm like, well, because there's no other way allowed right. in my house. <laughs> yeah, I believe <laughs> so, it. So with the residents, it's the same thing. And the medical students, I want them to see, you know, how much farther you can go 
if you have a close relationship and you get to know the majority of my patients, I don't need a chart in front of me. I know their history. Yeah. I know many of them. I see their, you know, I see their husbands and I see some some of their children as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's really good, you know, because you really get to know and be part of that community. So I feel very proud of that. I go to church and I run into patients all the time. I go to the grocery store and it's the same thing. And many times I actually am the one that recognizes the patient before they actually even do. Right. So, but I think that <laughs> is just an honor to just be an intricate part of a community. You know, that for me is, I think it's a big honor. Definitely. Do you think you wouldn't have gotten that... Um gratification or that aspect of medicine if you were a surgeon like you kind of originally wanted to be so I didn't want to be a surgeon I wanted to be a pediatrician so oh, okay. my so my dad's cousin was a pediatric surgeon yes. but I wanted the pediatric part of that because I Got love it. children to this day I melt if I see a child right <laughs> so and, and then even so you're an internist yeah, so I did my first rotation in pediatrics, mm -hmm. and then I cried every day <laughs> because they were like the very first patient I saw was this like I don't know ten eleven year old child in a corner, mm -hmm. and we were all these medical students, and he was in a corner, and they were he, they were trying to prep him for a bone marrow biopsy, which. We eventually did. Mm -hmm. This child was alone, no parents, because it was like, I remember it was a Tuesday in the middle of the week mm -hmm. and, you know, no parents with him. So this is your first rotation in medical school. That was one. Yeah, my first rotation in pediatrics uh, uh, was that one. Yeah. And so I remember this child, you know, nobody. And uh, of course, they came back because I don't remember if it was lymphoma or leukemia. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw so many leukemias and lymphomas and intractable, you know, uh, cardiac abnormalities, you know, congenital and, um, you know, congenital syphilis. It was just heartbreaking. You You're know, saying you just, were so invested and loved kids so I much was, that you couldn't do it. You couldn't deal with the, so the heartbreak it of it all. It was so hard. And so I swallowed my tears when I was there. But then when I get home, when I got home and I will talk to my parents, you know, you know, I will break and then at the end of my month, my parents said, we don't think you can be a pediatrician. And I said, I figure that much. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I came to the States, actually I was looking for something that allowed me to be a good mother, a good wife. So in other words, like a nine to five job. Right. And so, you know, I was looking into ophthalmology. Um, I like ophthalmology, dermatology, and I really like radiology. Mm -hmm. So radiology was my like my dream. Interesting. I really like it. Um, so I came to the States, um, which was another thing. Maybe if we have time, we don't go over that. That's well, a big deal. I'm actually curious. I wanted to oh, yeah. rewind a little bit yes, yeah. um, mm -hmm. and hit this again. Um, yes. Talk about uh, you coming to the, the States and um, what that was like and, and doing your residency here in Denver. Um, but I wanted to find out a little bit more about medical school in Colombia. Is there anything so it was, completely different? Than I think it's here? very different. I mean, it was extremely formal. Um, mm -hmm. Again, my dean was a very old-fashioned, right. you know, wonderful even, human even being. the admissions process seems very different because he's hand-picking people. Hand-picking. And here, and it's, uh, at least at this time, it's not, it's not, I mean, not I, the process. We all yeah. had had to pass, you know, the, you know, like the, like an MCAT right, type right. thing. Uh, but, but then it was like, you know, he wanted to just really, this was a private university. Mm -hmm. He came from a public university. 
and he was he was tired of people that didn't like wanted to just like drag their feet and slow down the process and he wanted to be as efficient as possible mm -hmm. so he in um the the president of the of the uh, university they actually were extremely strict and it was like it was handpicked and i my dad like i told you before he was a you know mechanical engineer so i didn't have any contacts uh, many of my classmates were the sons and daughters of very famous cardios, cardiothoracic surgeons endocrinologists mm -hmm. you know so forth and so on i didn't have any pool mm -hmm. it was just me yeah but i done it before i like convinced my my reverend mother to accept me there was no room for me there was room for my sisters there was no room for me hmm. and then she said there's no room for you and i said oh but i really want to be here i will make you so proud and then you know i graduated with honors in my high school <laughs> so anyway so i i have like that i mean i don't i'm not shy i would like to just like sell myself because i know that yeah. i will not disappoint you know if you tell me what you are expecting of me you know, I will just, I will deliver. Um, so anyway, I, I did that with, with my uh, dean. It was a very strict but very good medical school. Um, I was telling you earlier that it was a very young university when I started in there. It was just only 10 years old. Mm -hmm. um, now it's 40 year, over, over 40 years. Um, so um, anyway, it was just, uh, a very wonderful experience, very good. And, and, you, and you do two years of like didactic classroom work and then two years of rotations because that's how we do it here. So actually, to see if there's anything in my different. country is the, sorry for interrupting. No, in okay. my country is the, the, the European style. So you, I was 17 years of age when I started medical school mm -hmm. and it's six years that you go but you don't have long summers mm -hmm. you don't you have much reduced uh breaks compared to the united states yeah and so basically with with those reduced breaks you make up for those because it's six years versus eight years right so you combine pre-med and medical school in just one lump sum yeah and so i was 23 and a half when i graduated from medical school that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy age to be a doctor, be a, have all the responsibility of a physician or a, as a soon to be resident. Yeah. Um, and so did you do a residency in Columbia? I did an, my internship in Columbia. Okay. In there, actually, I did a little bit of everything. Um, mm -hmm. I did, uh, I deliver, I don't know how many babies. I mean, on my own, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I did C-sections. Uh, I assisted in many surgeries. I did you know, minor surgeries. Um, I mean, it was like extremely um, autonomous. I was like, when I was a, a, an intern, I was in charge of like the, uh, you know, a small hospital, a small community hospital that had actually many beds. Uh, and hmm. then I was like, I, you know, if somebody needed to be in, seen in the ER, I'll be the one seeing the patient in the ER if it was a night. Yeah. Um, if somebody needed to just like, I will assist for deliveries. I mean, well, I will deliver if it was an uncomplicated delivery, I will assist for a C-section, um, or, or the, um, I mean, um, 
the uh, OBGYN will assist me, you know, if I was far enough into, into the, my uh, internship. I will assist for anybody that will come for, you know, if they had a gunshot wound or any other thing in the middle of the night. So I will see, and then if somebody in the, in the floors needed, an, you know, to be assist, I will be the one. So it was so just me and me yeah. only. So you, so I got an excellent, you know, excellent uh, training. I'm, I'm very grateful. And that was just your first year after medical school. Yeah. So, I mean, my internship. You right. Know? And so, um, you know, it was just a, a very, very good. And then in my country, if you want to get your DEA, you actually have to work for the government hmm. or in a rural area. Or even if it's not a rural area, in an underserved area within the city. So explain your DEA. So just like if I want to get, if I want to be able to prescribe for narcotics, mm-hmm. then I need that DEA number. So in order for me to get that, I had to work for the for the government or in an underserved area for an entire year, hmm. and then after that, they will then give me the number, like I have a DEA number in here. Right. But in here, I just didn't have to do any serves, uh, any serving. Why just, did you have to do it like that? That is how it's done in the whole country, which is yeah. an, an amazing way of like both giving a very good experience to a completely green doctor, mm-hmm. um, giving a doctor to a town that is like, like completely far away from the city or an area in the city that nobody wants to go to. Right. And so it's like, it's a win-win a, situation. Yeah. And then at the end, then you're like, okay, you're, here is your, your prize for like helping us. You get your DEA. Interesting. It's, so it seems I think like that, a good incentive to get people. No kidding. I mean, I think that the United States should yeah. think about something like that, you know, cause yeah, I mean, we do a little bit of a loan forgiveness thing. Um, same kind of situation, but it's, it's more of a, you know, forgiving loans rather than get your... Correct. And forgiving loans right now is such a big deal because medical school is so expensive. So how much would we, like everybody will benefit if we had more of these programs, you know, in place? Mm Because I know of an OBGYN that uh, that's how she paid for medical school. Um, And she went to an Indian reservation and worked in there. But I don't think that is like that readily available. I mean, I don't know, obviously, because I didn't go to school in here. But I mm-hmm. think that if, if there was more of that, you know, and it's a win-win situation. I mean, the doctor, you know, just gets more and more experience and get more confidence. And then the patients, obviously, they are so grateful. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, why not? Yeah. I think it's wonderful. So, we, yeah, we so do. I did mine in the middle of the jungle and in an area that classified by my country was called a red zone. So where was, was that? Ah, uh, in the middle of Colombia, yeah. in the middle of the Magdalena, Magdalena jungle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was so, it was classified as a red zone because it was full of gorillas. And I am not talking about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gorillas from Africa, right. but the ones that have a gun. Yeah. And so it was a very hot area. So seems like that was late eighties too. Um, yeah, I graduated in 1989. I should have wow. said, I shouldn't have said that. No, sorry. I didn't, <laughs> but anyway. didn't mean to date you. Yes. <laughs> but that seems like, uh, yeah, the most, uh, Correct. Pablo Escobar and, and actually, difficult time to do that. Pablo Escobar yeah. erupted that the year that I was doing my, my, uh, rural year. Wow. Yeah. That was like when he was like 
putting all the car bombs. My sister almost got killed in one of those. Wow. Uh, a lot of people got killed that, you know, it was just horrendous. But, and so anyway, there it was like, you know, you needed to know somebody to get an, a, a good position. And again, my dad was not in medicine mm -hmm. and he was not a politician. So I was like trying to... Um, you know, make sure that I got a position and I tried and I tried and I tried. In the course of that, I actually met the president of who was going to be, became later on the president of Colombia. His name is Alvaro Uribe uh -huh. because he was a friend of, uh, of my mother's. And um, so I met him and I was trying to just get, you know, a position. And I tried and I tried all my classmates had gotten positions and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get this. And I need, I mean, I wanted to get that year out of the, out of my way just so I can then start my residency. And so I had gotten an offer to work in a cement factory because my dad was the CEO of a cement factory that was the sister, you know, um, cement factory for this cement factory. But the cement factory was in the middle of a very dangerous area. Mm -hmm. So that's why I didn't, I didn't say yes from the beginning because even my dad was afraid of going there when he had to go and do consulting for them. So I didn't want to do it. But when I couldn't get anything, then I took the position. And then the day that I arrived to the cement factory, then they gave me a call and said, you know, you have a position in the city. I was like, well, thanks, but no thanks. It felt so good to just like, you know, say nothing, yeah, say wow. thank you. So I did it and I was actually, we were four physicians because we were in charge of 800 employees plus older families. So it was literally a small town that just grew around the cement factory. So hmm. we did a lot of good. Um, and when I got there soon after, um, they, there was a new law that, you know, factories of certain amount of, pay, uh, of uh, employees needed to have a, um, a uh, occupational health department. And so I was named the director of the occupational health department, brand new out of medical yeah, wow. school. I was like, oh my gosh, thank goodness I grew up with my dad being the CEO. So I have... You know, since I was five, I could recite to you how to produce cement. Okay. So I was very aware of all, like, all the things. And I already had had an idea of what would the risk, you know. So, you know, so mm -hmm. the risk would be silicosis yeah. on the query. And then uh, hearing loss, mm -hmm. um, you know, any other damage, you know, from amputations and things like that, you know, from, like, heavy machinery. Um, so anyway, so I started putting together, you know, things. So I built up a booth for an audiometry, um, you know, just so I can start screening all my, my patients, my uh, employees that were at high risk. I started, you know, going from site to site to site, you know, distributing hearing protection from small hearing protection to the large ones. Um, I started doing x-rays on my patients with, you know, that were at risk for silicosis, giving the mask. You know, obviously nobody wanted to wear a mask because it was so absolutely hot. Yeah. It was 40 degrees Celsius in the yeah. shade. <laughs> wow. 40, 41 degrees. What's that, like 105 plus, 110? Yes. Yeah. It is ridiculous. Yeah. And anyway, so nobody wanted to wear it, but I would, I like literally will go from side to side, you know, every day of the week. I will, you know, go and visit them we had our own query in our own um, um hydroelectric plant mm -hmm. when so you say you were going to oh sorry go ahead no i was just asking um when you say you were going around to people uh, were you 
performing education or were you just enforcing mask laws? I was or, educating. Yeah. I was e evaluating and I was making sure that people were wearing their protection. And I would literally, I mean, this was in the middle of the Magdalena river mm -hmm. and, um, and in the intersection with a note, you know, where they not a river, you know, just dies on the Magdalena. So I actually will have to take a, you know, a, you know, a boat and go up the river to the quarry and even farther up the river to go to the um, hydroelectric plant. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just like an amazing experience. I mean, being 23 years of age and having that big of a playground, right. it was amazing. It sounds crazy. Yeah, It was crazy. And I mean, my... There was a one of the engineers who had my same last name, Pelais. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, my dad, Pelais, you know, that, my dad was Dr. Pelais, and he will, he was a very good friend of my dad, and he will get so mad at me because I will accept invitations to go to their houses, and he's like, "You do not know who of those are guerrillas," and I said. Mm -hmm. They love me. I mean, I'm here to take care of them. They're not going to do anything to me. They're like, they're going to kidnap you. I'm like, no, they're not. Well, but that I, was a real fear. It was at a the real time thing, in that place, right? not to me. But then <laughs> everyone else is afraid. But, but yes, I was having fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was hiking and doing all the good stuff. And then <laughs> um, we actually, I worked 15 days in a row, and then we had three days off. But it was far away. Um, so we actually flew uh, in and out of the factory. And besides, because it will take us six hours if, you, if, we, drew, if mm -hmm. we drove. But on top of that, it was extremely risky to get kidnapped mm -hmm. by the guerrillas. Mm -hmm. So we always took a twin order, you know, a 19-seater. So we went back and forth, you know, every 15 days. So I had 15 days working and then three days off. And then 15 days working and then three days off. Well, on one of those days off, I left on a Saturday and then I got home. I was just like resting, talking to my mom. And one of my engineer friends that worked in the city called me and said, you know, so-and-so who was the engineer in charge of the quarry just got assassinated, assassinated last night mm -hmm. along with two other employees. I was, you know, heartbroken. You know, he was a very yeah, good wow. friend of mine, a little bit older than me, kindness could be. Um, at that time, because of the guerrillas, they actually, um, and I don't know, I mean, I left my country for so long ago, but I think that there's still such a thing, you know, they call it vaccines. So the guerrillas will come to you, and if you own a big uh, ranch, um, or, or if you own a cement factory like they did, or whatever it is, they will come and say, if, we don't, if you don't want us to kidnap your employees or your family, um, you're gonna have to pay us this, just like the mafia, you need right. to pay us this amount. Um, they call that vaccines? Vaccines. Mm -hmm. Why do they call Vacunas. that? Vacunas. You know, because it's like vaccinated you against the guerrillas. I see. Okay. You know, so you don't get the guerrilla disease, which is a very bad disease. I got you. You know? Wow. So, you know. Yeah. So it was a pretty... And so the, 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 the cement factory had like, a, you know, just decided a long time ago that they are not going to negotiate with with terrorists and so they were refused and, and before i went there they had killed six people that's what my dad was afraid and that's why i didn't want to go mm -hmm. but it had been so pleasant and i had enjoyed so much my my time in there that i you know didn't think that it will happen again and it did uh and i went back to work my parents were like freaking out yeah, they wanted out me to resign mind. and i said 
I will turn in my resignation, but I will not leave until they find a replacement. Yeah. And we actually went back and they actually, uh, we got an information a week later that they were going to actually attack the actual cement factory, not the quarry, which was up the river, Mm -hmm. which was like, you know, easy to just attack because it was just surrounded by by jungle. But this was, there was an entire town around it. And they said no, that we needed to abandon the the factory. So we did wow. in the middle of the night. I kid you not. God is my witness. Wow! So in Just middle, suddenly. yeah, and we all left with a walkie-talkie, and only Dr. Pelaez stayed behind until um, our, the army came and uh, completely um, closed the factory. The factory was closed for over a month until there were, I mean, the negotiations from between the government and. And the guerrillas, you know, were, you know, assured us that we were going to be safe. And then we went, I still went back. My parents were even madder, you know. And yeah. then I went back and I did turn my resignation. And about a month later, they found somebody. And then that's when I decided to come to the States. Wow. Mm. So then, then you just kind of quick up and left to Denver. I was thinking of going to Europe mm-hmm. uh, because I had some friends in Europe. Um, but I had... I had come to the States the year before just for a trip and I met a very nice family and then they, you know, we, I became very good friends with them, you know, was a mom and a dad and, you know, they're two, like nine and, and uh, four year old. And so I came and stayed with them at the beginning and I was going to go to Spain to do my residency and mm-hmm. then they changed the law in there. So I decided to stay here. I came straight to Denver, which... That was a long time ago, and at that time they were extremely close to foreign graduates, and mm-hmm. I was aware of that. They were they were what to foreign? Grad- Very closed, oh, okay. you know. They they were yeah. like n- not opened, you know. So yeah. my chances of you know being able to get a position was just very small. Yeah. But I thought, ah, well, Might if it's well meant apply. to be, yeah. it's meant to be. Just like you know, I applied to medical school. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. So I just decided I stayed here. I took my USMLE step one, USMLE step two. Um, and, um, and then in the meantime, I did an externship at Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital mm-hmm. uh, because I needed a letter of recommendation. Nobody knew me. Right. And so I needed somebody that could just write a, write a letter of recommendation. So I did an, an externship and was very good. I was petrified yep. about it because Dr. Fidin you know, which uh, was the like the vice dean of the of the residency, the second one in charge. Um, she was extremely intimidating, extremely no- the most knowledgeable physician I have ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just every time she'll talk to me, I was like petrified. And it's you got to understand, I learned. I mean, I learned medicine. All my my textbooks were in English, okay. but my patients spoke Spanish. Right. My lectures were in Spanish. Yep. So I, you know, when I read my journals were in English, my books were in English, but my actual, you know, interviewing patients and examining patients was conducted in Spanish. Right. So it was the first time that I had to do the translation in here and then come to the United States and go to, P- to Presbyterian St. Luke's mm-hmm. and then start, you know, just uh, being with these patients and interacting with them in English. So it was really hard. I was like trying to just like do the translation in my brain of like, you know, like saying it in Spanish, then translating it to English, right. then the patient will answer. It, it was like, and so, and of course, you know, if this very amazingly knowledgeable, you know, lady just, you know, starts, you know, drilling you, 
I am trying to just yeah, translate my knowledge from yeah. Spanish to English. And so anyway, right. that's another step that's, that's super difficult, super to, difficult. To but then I, the I, 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 I had a talk with myself and I'm like, you know what, if you want somebody to give you a letter of recommendation, she will be the perfect one. Because mm -hmm. she's the she's like the second one in command. Dr. Matthews, who was the, you know, the director of, of the residency program was lovely, but he hardly rounded. And he was very, very shy. So it would be much more difficult for me to approach him. Dr. Feeding was extremely opinionated and mm -hmm. very open. And, you know, she had an entourage. And I'm like, well, I better just like go to her. Right. And so I just came to her and I said, Dr. Feeding, I was wondering if I can um, just give you a lecture to you and your medical students. And she's like, you're going to laugh. Um, <laughs> Yeah, sure. You know, there's that new test, that INR thing is really confusing because before it was only PT. Okay, <laughs> right, so, yeah. So it's like, you know, can you just give us a lecture about the INR, you know, and, the, the, you know, extrapolate to what the PT and everything else. Oh, I went above and beyond. I did slices. I, you know, I did a beautiful presentation. I did all these handouts for all the medical students and for Dr. Feeding. And I did this beautiful thing. And Dr. Feeding since then loved me and uh, got me under her wing. She never had any children. Uh, mm -hmm. Her two children were two gigantic dogs. Nice. Um, she had an IQ that I don't know what it is, but it's like, whoo. Yep. And then her husband was a physicist, so extremely bright people. Uh, and for the first time, Dr. Feeding, I think, had the, like, the feeling that she had a daughter. And she and I were like, like inseparable for uh, three and a half years, you know. Yeah, and, amazing. You know, after graduating, the same thing. So you got a letter of recommendation from her from to Feeding. stay at, at that Presbyterian residency. Presbyterian St. Luke's, okay. correct. And that was Presbyterian St. Luke's slash see you mm -hmm. um okay. so i, I did that. Mm -hmm, at that time and so i did many of my rotations through cu and the va and denver uh, at that time was called denver general now it's called denver health yep. but so i did a lot of my rotations through that and another one's through presbyterian st luke's aurora press and aurora regional those were the names of those hospitals that now are there presbyterian st luke's is the same mm -hmm. and but the aurora press is now the north campus of aurora that is now only a psychiatric hospital yeah in aurora regional is ca is called the medical center of aurora south right and so anyway that so i did it and so i, I had a very All good priority yeah. yeah it was very good so i was i was very blessed that i had a lot of very excellent attendings cool um I love your your whole story because it's it's so uh, you know varied. I, I'm just it should be a movie or something. You know? <laughs> the uh, best part about it is that actually I did get actually name resident of the year, you know, and so was actually really uh, after being somebody that I thought I was not going to get a position. I actually got name resident of the year, you know, my senior residence when I was an intern because I had a good reputation from my externship. They they requested me. So then uh, it was just really good. It just felt, you know, like I feel vindicated. I knew from the beginning that I could, you know, survive. But in, in the same token, I was like, gosh, you know, this whole you know, language thing, am I able to just be myself and mm -hmm. just be able to be who I am in this new language and, you know, make patients feel at ease. Like I have done all these many years in my native language yeah. and I was able to, which is a big blessing. Yeah. 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 It's, um, 
it's incredible that you, I mean, your whole story, um, has shown that, you know, you just follow your dream, follow your, um, you know, fundamental things that drive you and it all seems to work out. Um, so that's, that's a, a beautiful kind of ending to your residency was that you were resident of the year in your, in your third year of Correct. residency. That was my first, my last year. Yeah. Can I ask you a couple more questions about Absolutely. your residency? Yes. Um, just for a couple of minutes. Cause I also do want to get to a couple more topics, mm-hmm. um, about, uh, your thoughts on preventive medicine and how that works in, in your practice. I know you definitely are excited to talk about that um, and just making our healthcare system better. Yes. Um, and what we as um, people in the healthcare field can do, maybe what patients could do and how it, everyone can contribute. But I do want to hear about kind of what are some aspects of um, your residency that you were trained in, but that you knew were you know, maybe not going to jive with how you were actually going to practice in the future. Was there, were, was there any ways that you felt that mm, my internal medicine training was great and, um, but there's stuff that I feel like is just maybe not preventive medicine, maybe too much reactive medicine. Yes. And I, I always say that I practice absolutely preventive medicine and not reactive medicine. I have done that my entire career. I've mm-hmm. been an internist for 22 and a half years and I have practiced like that forever. That's why up until I came here, you know, my big emphasis was in the younger population. Not to say that they were they were just extremely healthy. There were many that were healthy, but there mm-hmm. were many that were very sick. Uh, because I do were blessed with like knowing a lot of the attendings, you know, because I stayed in contact with many of my attendings uh, from residency and got to meet many others. And then they knew that I had a passion for like, you know, uh, there was a lovely doctor, Dr. Perryman uh, referred me a patient and, and, and she described me to this patient, said, you got to do- go to Dr. Lynn because she's like a bone, like a, do- a dog with a bone. Mm-hmm. She just like, she goes crazy. She's not let out. Yeah. No, not let out. So I just, that, uh, my preventive medicine is for me the most important thing. But, you know, th- that's why I end up practicing in this part of town because mm-hmm you know, PSL was a lot of reactive medicine. And I felt like I was, well, and the thing is that, you know, I could like literally, I had one of my very good classmates said, you know, I always look for your notes. At that time, they were all paper Mm -hmm. charts. And it's like, you have such a beautiful handwritten uh, handwritten notes. And they're they're so detailed that I can go and I, I literally can copy that because it's the exact same thing. And the patient comes from a decompensated heart failure. And it's the same thing. And so it was frustrating for me to feel that I wasn't making a dent. You know, because either because the patient was depressed, um, was demented, uh, didn't have the appropriate care at home, but somehow, some way, they got off of their meds, and then they, you know, a month or two later, they were back on mm-hmm. the same bad decompensated stage, and then I will, I was happy to take care of them. I, you know, I send them on my way, mm-hmm. all nicely compensated, and then they will. You know, it it was like a revolving door. Right. And so that really showed me that I really didn't want to practice that type of medicine because I wanted to feel like I was making a difference in each individual patient and then hopefully in my community. 
totally. so much to say in the world, but I wanted to make, I wanted to feel like I was a doctor that was making a difference. And so that's why I wanted to be, you know, very much the, that person that went for the preventive medicine. And my patients are lovely. They, none of them want to disappoint me. They want, they feel so happy when they lost weight, when they quit smoking, because I was like always drilling them about that. And when they finally achieved that goal, they wanted to come and show off to me and I parade them around my office. I was so happy right. about it. Yeah. And so they felt really, you know, like a positive reassurement, you know, and that's how I've had practice and it's been so good for me because to this day, that's the way that I I like it, you know, and it's just been very positive. Yeah. So when you were at PSL, which um, for those who don't know, it's kind of in the downtown area of Denver, um, you know, d more difficult patients with just, or I guess, not difficult patients, but more difficult situations, uh, uh, less healthy, more inpatient you were practicing rather than uh, outpatient primary care type stuff? Yes, correct. And right now, there's a lot of the indigent population, the homeless population. So obviously, more at risk, you know, because there's not the support that you wish you could have mm -hmm. with many of them. And so obviously they, they will revolve, you know, they, that will be the revolving door, you know, cause mm -hmm. you know, they will run out of meds, you know, cause they don't have money or because they are, you know, alcoholics or drug addicts. Mm -hmm. And so they, they derail. And so it just becomes a thing in which you have to have not only you as the doctor, but you have to have a social worker and a psychologist and a lot of like a multi-disciplinary approach, which, you know, I wanted to be able to feel that I myself was making a, a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And so here you're at a outpatient clinic. Um, and so what does prevent preventive medicine look like to you on a patient to patient basis? Like what, how does it actually manifest with any given patient okay, or maybe so, a variety of different types of patients? Mm -hmm. So first of all, I'm obsessed about teaching my medical students and residents about skin. Mm -hmm. um, skin is something that so easily can, you can save somebody's life because if you know when a mole or the proper technical name will be a nevi or nevus, mm -hmm. um, will be concerning. If you know what is, what, if you can differentiate between something that is suspicious versus something that is absolutely nothing, like a seborrheic keratosis, then if that is suspicious, then you can, and you know how to remove it, you can save a life very easy. Mm -hmm. And I can give you a quick example. I saved my own life. Yeah, I went tell to a dermatologist that, and I went for, you know, something else for an eczema. And then I said, oh, by the way, I don't like this mole in, in, in my leg. Yeah, it's like and on your shin. It was, yes, on my shin. And yep. then, and then, I mean, literally, you know, this person took, you know, just, two seconds to look at it and she said oh no it, that's just nothing but a solar solar lentigo and i'm like she's like oh don't worry about it and i came out of that thinking who, who am i she's the dermatologist i mean the internist and you know she knows best but every time that i looked at it it just like gave me like a bad feeling mm -hmm. and i have learned well that's a very important thing i have learned to trust my gut instinct yeah and that's something very important for all of you guys that are listening to just pay attention to your gut instinct. If you're a good doctor, you develop that. And we don't, we don't, 
when you do not like that, please follow that because it will, it will most likely fall, you know, take you to where you need to go. But anyway, I didn't like it and I got my PA to remove it and, and it was a melanoma. Wow. And, um, you know, I was, I was in my 30s and I truly thought I had left three children orphan and uh, I, I was very worried. Um, and thank goodness, it, it, you know, I, I cut it right on time. It was melanoma, melanoma in situ. Um, but, you know, but since then I have had, you know, 53 removed and out of which only 10 have been. On yourself. On myself. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, Incredible. yeah. So, I mean, it's just like one of those things that I have diagnosed, not only that, but I diagnosed multiple ones. When I went to my current dermatologist, she's like, point out to me the ones you don't like. And I said, this one, this one, this mm -hmm. one. She removed 10. And she called me and said, well, um, I, I found all of them were dysplastic, so premalignant. Mm -hmm. So, this means two things. Number one, you have a very high risk for a second or even a third melanoma. Yep. And number two, you have a darn good clinical eye. So if you don't like something, point it at me and I will remove it. Yeah, wow. So, so I'm assuming that your point is not that everyone should be diagnosing themselves, but, no, but more so that people should, or at least... No, it's what I'm oh, saying yeah, is that, mm -hmm, that we need to... You know, I, I want to train you guys. You know, I had only one doctor that trained me and trained me very quickly. It was just like, it was an, a very quick um, rotation with him. But he was the first one that taught me how to do mold removals. And so then when I started my own practice right out of residency, I started like whenever I didn't like something, I removed, I removed, I removed. And I diagnosed so many melanomas, basal cells, and squamous cell carcinomas. And so then my eye became very well trained. Mm -hmm. I actually, the vast majority I did, I mean, 90 plus percent, I did it myself. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and then I surrounded myself with good dermatologists that I could refer to and plastic surgeons and so forth and so on. And people that know that I, that I'm not just like like Chicken Little, you know, saying that right. this guy is falling, this guy. No, if I don't like something, most of the time, that's going to be something that is not going to be good. Yeah. Um, and then if I empower you as a medical student or as a resident with the tools of how to remove that nevi, mm -hmm. and you are able to do it and do it right, um, then you can actually go ahead and go. And every time that you do a physical or even without a physical, you can just look and see, and many times I'm just like, the patient is still completely dressed, but I don't like something in the dorsum of their hand. Yeah. And so, I mean, that is like, that is right there, preventive medicine. Preventive medicine is doing an annual exam every year mm -hmm. and just checking somebody from head to toe in a gown so you can examine, like I examine through the hair so I can see the scalp and make sure that there is no, there are no molds that are suspic suspicious in there. I look, I palpate at liver and spleen. I listen to the heart and lungs without any clothing on. That's the only way that you can really, you know, examine and properly diagnose. I mean, you can find a splenomegaly, mm -hmm. you know, hepatomegaly. You can find things that otherwise you won't. So that's the name of the game. You have to do that crusade. And to be hands-on, it sounds like. Yes, very yeah. hands-on. I can't stand, you know, when a doctor is like in and out. They're going to miss things. Yeah. And it is upon us to just be detail-oriented. And if you do not look for that, 
you are going to miss it. So, so again, it's like a dog, you know, with a well-trained, uh, well-trained nose, you know, mm-hmm. sniffing around and looking for the appropriate things. Yeah, know? definitely. That's it. Preventive medicine, the name of the game. It's amazing. Um, I want to kind of, um, we have a couple more minutes here, um, but not too many more. So, um, I guess I'll, I'll, um, switch gears or transition to talking about educating of patients and then education. educating students and residents and people who are in their early days in medicine. Um, But what can you tell us about how preventive medicine works in terms of giving patients education in terms of, you know, like obviously you can remove a mole from them and maybe teach them how to recognize uh, one that looks nasty. But other ways that you um, find that getting people healthy or keeping people healthy rather than, you know, so I always, I have like a lot of corny sayings, yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that I say is like, if, if us as a community, as physicians, this community of physicians, you know, put more emphasis on preventive medicine, and I am talking about, you know, optimal weight, eating properly, drinking enough water, losing weight if you need to lose weight, stop um, excess drinking and stop smoking, literally, that alone, probably two thirds of doctors will like be out of a job. Right. And I may exa- may be exaggerating, but I don't think so. In our community, that we see so many things related with just obesity. Yeah. And nobody really makes you know makes education on that. I make it very real. I just will like tell them you know what apps to use, how to track their exercise, how to track their what they are eating how much water they're drinking, you know, so it makes it very tangible and I make them come back in a month. I will just recheck their weight. I will just see, I will like see, review their, their journal of what they've been eating and how much they've been exercising. And I can just redirect, you know, if they are like when they, they need, uh, being to be redirected, um, with tobacco cessation, the same thing Mm -hmm. with preventive, um, studies i am like the biggest proponent of like mammograms and colonoscopies and in vaccinations but you know patients see my passion and they don't really want to disappoint me yeah you know so it's just if you invest in your patients they're going to give that much back to you so that's the way that i have approached it and i am very hands-on with patients you know as you can see i talk all the time well Mm -hmm. obviously the the people that are listening, they cannot see, but the ones that know me, you guys know I talk with my hands all the time. Yeah. But I am very hands-on, you know, learning, uh, you know, teaching in, in for the patients learning. Like today, this morning, I was just explaining to this patient that had a thyroid problem. I said, well, you know, it's important because you had a bleeding on your uh, pituitary gland. And I said, well, there are three major glands. There is the hypothalamus that I call it the king Mm-hmm. In the very top of your brain. Then there is the, the pituitary that is sitting behind your eyes and is literally sitting on a cellar, mm-hmm. which is like a throne. Yep. That's the queen. <laughs> nice. So the, the, the king tells the queen to tell the princess, which is the thyroid, yep. to then manage everything from your temperature to your mood to your cholesterol to ev- and then the rest of your hormones. Mm-hmm. So... 
I, I said, that's what we're, you know, they already checked your pituitary because you had those that bleed, but I need to make sure that your thyroid is working okay because since you had a bleed in your pituitary, you may just have a deficiency on your thyroid. And I said, and I don't know about you, but I don't mess with princesses. So that's why we're checking on your princess, which is the thyroid. Yeah, yeah. amazing. So I wish I wish we had more time to talk, um, but you've given us so much to, uh, to think about and, and uh, thank you so much for... Um, telling us about your whole life story, or at least some of it, and uh, telling us a, a lot about your uh, your life and work. Well, thank you so much, Ross. I really appreciate you inviting me, and uh, I just hope I had inspired some upcoming, you know, primary care physicians. Yes, that's the goal here. Yes. Uh, and so, yeah, thank you once again, and and I hope I don't put you on the spot by asking you to maybe come back again, and we'll um, we'll talk deeper into. Um, other things that you've done and, and your passion for women's health and other aspects of preventive health care and health care in, in America and, and the Western world. Absolutely. I would love to come back. It will be my honor. And I really appreciate being invited. And I can't wait to come back. Okay. Thank Great. you so much. Yeah, thanks again. Good times. Good times. It was a delight to talk to Dr. Lynn on the podcast, and we're working on bringing her back on the podcast for a second episode, um, just like I talked about in the intro. Our booking agents over here are always working very hard for you, the listener, to get you the people and the topics in medicine on the show that will interest you. And frankly, I'm not sure that that sentence made grammatical sense, but my producers tell me that we can fix it in post. So we might do that. So please reach out to us um, on email at theprimarycarepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at primarycarepodcast and give us a review on iTunes, rate and review, subscribe, you know the drill. Just thanks for listening, everybody. Okay, delicious dishes. Play the song. That would just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Thanks for listening to the Family Medicine Podcast. Remember to subscribe, follow, like, or whatever you do to show you're digging it. Tune in next time. Her uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though. Friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized. Went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires and the story's well known. History ticks along like a metronome. And then I came to be walk talk and throw stuff all grown up i got a job now and showing up i'm sleep deprived i'm misaligned my appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time and then i met you lovely and smooth you quickly removed my modern man's blues i want to celebrate every breath that i take because i'm afraid i'm dreaming and i don't want to wait so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe. 
but I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? When I was younger, I met God and I hugged her. She said, hey baby, instead of getting lost within, how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin? Stop, begin, let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road, go an inch by inch. Don't sprint, take it slow, protect your soul. Travel long and far, but make sure to come home. Cause the love that's here is what keeps you going gives you the power and the freedom to grow let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress this life is crazy but it's the goddamn best when life gets complex don't think just do it first it was simpler when the uterus was so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold body, mind, and soul, I'm forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. All conversation and information exchanged and contained in the Family Medicine Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board-certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. I'm forever gonna grow into something we don't know.